All of them do the same thing. They follow the rules. They live parallel lives. But they laughed at you. <laughs> You'll never make it in podcasting, they'd said. You'll show them. Just as soon as you figure out how to make an RSS feed. Parallel Lives is your Recondite role-playing resource exploring systems outside the dungeon and off the beaten Pathfinder. This episode comes in at about an hour 20. Welcome to Parallel Lives. I'm not Wednesday, Sophia, and this week we've played My Life with Master. Thank you, Kay. Who is here on this podcast alongside me, Charles, and this person over here across from me, Hugh, and you already know Wednesday, Sophia, who's not getting to do the intro this week. Hugh, when was this game put out, and who put it out? It was put out in 2003 by Paul Zige, or Zige. We're not really sure how to pronounce a last name that starts with a C followed by a Z, and so we really apologize to you, creator of this game. Super sorry about that. Happen to be listening to this podcast. We also think your game kind of sucks, but woo, yeah, let's uh, we can get that fired. out. We should just start with that because that's important. This game was published by Half Meme Press. Oh, good. Yeah, also that. Sorry, Half Meme Press, about your shit game. It's not a shit it's game. Not a it's not a shit game. It has fundamental flaws that we'll be glad to get into. And boy, will we. Oh, gosh, will we. This game, despite its flaws, has a very delightful premise. It is basically an Igor simulator. You are the minion of a master in early 19th century Europe, and you early have to... Early 20th century. It's okay. It's 18. No, I wasn't the one who said that first. I'm the one who said 18. Mm-hmm. 17th, 18. Okay, so we... In any case, it's 1805. Hugh was led astray and was playing a different game with a significantly updated palette of fashions. Yeah. I might have said it wrong, but I didn't read the rules. Imagining, like, <clears throat> high-waisted just women in, in short jackets and sort of small but not their bustles, and then I should be imagining empire waist dresses yeah. And, yeah. and syphilis. I was not factoring in the amount of syphilis that has to be in this <laughs> yeah, game if it happens in 1805. Yep, it's true. That also explains the conflict between romanticism and not romanticism. Yes! Yeah, yeah, it <laughs> no, does. That's, that's, that's it's why. all started to come together <laughs> to me, for me, but unfortunately the game still sucks because the problems lie in the mechanics. The problems also, are math. Hugh, that's why there was a person who was like, I'm going to start an egalitarian school, and people were like, mm. This is Prussia. I, did they let women go to school in 1905? Well, I think they I were in Germany know. by then. They're Prussia. Look, the state of life on the Prussian peninsula is not our concern here. <laughs> yeah, that's for Prussia lives, which is our other other. So, yes, you're sort of an Igor, and you have to carry out the whims of a master with a nonsensical and horrific plan. This is a tough life, and in order to make it a better life, you try desperately to make friends with ordinary townspeople, but it's hard because you're an Igor. This is a game about making friends and failing to make friends and hating yourself. Yep. And eventually rising up to kill the master who lords over you. Probably failing. Success is possible, but when failure happens, some weird things, man, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there when we get there. Success is inevitable, but (laughs) yeah. On a geological (laughs) timescale, success is inevitable. Unlike most of the games we play here, this game has a GM. Like most of the games we play here, this game maybe doesn't totally need a GM. The GM is responsible for playing the master, for coming up with the whims of the master, and for basically framing scenes and playing NPCs. 
but especially because everybody works together to create the master, those tasks could, I think, probably be pretty easily delegated to other players. I gotta say, this is the first game I've ever played where my thought really has just been, this game needs less dice. Maybe it needs less mechanics. Yes, also this game does have mechanics. There's dice rolling at the end of every conflict, and therefore at the end of every scene. And uh, dice rolling really does drive the story in most ways. You've hinted at the way that you create a master. I want to talk about that first, because as much as we have substantial beef with how this played out in practice, I think it'd be fun to start with what was, at least for me, a high point, which is that I think the game's character generation is really pretty well conceived. And that starts with the way that you generate the master. It has some really clever schema that you fit your master into on yeah. two axes. One of those axes is beast versus brain. The other is their type, which they're either a breeder, a feeder, a collector, or a teacher. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit here about what those mean. So the brain type masters are the cerebral ones, and beast type masters are not strictly beastly. I think they may have chosen brain and beast for uh, alliteration. But they are physical. They are physical, yeah. They're the ones interested in, like, sensual pleasure and sadism and masochism and, like, encounters of the flesh. What's the platonic division between the three parts of the self, the, the brain? The ego? No, that's Freudian, though. The Freudian one is just a cheap Plato knockoff, really. Yeah. The beast is, is about appetites. And the brain is about the intellect. Yeah. And the spirit isn't well represented, but... We don't have very many spirit villains in this. Yeah. And first of all, that's a really okay way to divide up villainous motivation, is into which one of those spheres is the one they care about. I think the professions that they choose are also pretty interesting. Theaters are Draculas and similar, that their villainy is oriented around acquiring something to keep themselves alive or to flourish. Bathory is a classic feeder, even though she's not eating. A feeder beast, even, actually. Yeah. Draculi, um, Draculosi, Draculuses. Draculum? I'd go Draculi if you held my feet to the fire. Is it not Dracupods? It's a Dracopides uh, from the Greek. <laughs> Breeders are monster makers. Do you make homunculi out of the bones of children, like one of the example villains? Are you Dr. Frankenstein? Then you are a breeder. Collectors are... P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum, yeah. Who is not the person I would have put in the same company as, like, Hannibal Lecter and Dracula and Elizabeth Bathory and P.T. Barnum. Though maybe that actually says something about the frequent recurring use of the circus as a setting of horror. Mm. Like, I like the implied social criticism in saying that, no, actually, the circus freak show actually does have an evil villain behind it. It's the circus owner. Mm -hmm. But was Barnum, he was brain collector, I think? think that he was brain collector yes yeah because where brain collectors are all about assembling a collection that adheres to certain aesthetic or cerebral criteria beast collectors are usually in it for some sort of like monstrous personal reinvention they're putting together a new body for themselves or something a villain creation system is cool that's a really neat bit of structure that the game provides you a lot of games could use a villain creation system I also think that this game's villain creation system is really cool and fun, especially because it emphasizes repeatedly, like, well, you might invent a master who doesn't quite fall into any of these, like, breeder, feeder, teacher, collector, and that's fine. Don't worry about it. It's more important to have a master who has, like, goals that work and are fun and 
is a cool master for you to have in your game than it is to fall into these categories. But the categories are also really helpful. So they sort of get the best of both worlds in this, I think. The thing that I love particularly about it is it's not even just a general villain creation system. It really creates this kind of villain. It really creates, you know, a, a Vlad Dracul. It creates an Erzabet Battery. It provides a very coherent typology that you can use as a starting point for creating the specific villain for your game and your story and doesn't actually do anything more than that, which I think is a good choice because this game is already bogged down by mechanics that don't quite work and special mechanics that related to what kind of villain you have would not make it any better. My beef with Master. Yeah, so at a minimum, if you do not want to play this game, but you are a person who ends up playing role-playing games that frequently want... A villain as a centerpiece figure. I would say at the minimum, read this rulebook, look into this part of the system. I think that this is absolutely salvageable and usable elsewhere. It is completely exportable. Create both the villain and the player characters, the minions, and use them as the antagonists in a more conventional horror role-playing game. It would be great. It would be a lot of fun. The last part of the villain is the villain's wants and needs. Needs are sort of the everyday thing that the villain needs to keep on going. So if you're a Dracula, you need to drink blood. If you're a Frankenstein, you need to have body parts and like scientific materials. Your want as a villain is your overall goal that you're looking to accomplish, but which can never be accomplished. So if you're a Frankenstein, you're probably looking to have a perfect resurrection or to make a perfect being. If you're a Dracula, you might want your bride or, you know, just to have the best house in London or whatever the fuck Dracula wants. The game actually specifies it a little bit more than that. It's not just that you have your want. You have your want, and that is related to your villain's outsiders, uh, which is another way in which this game is really not... It's not building a general villain template. It's building a very specific kind. The outsiders are the people against whom the villain measures their success or towards whom the villain's attempts are directed. In the case of Dracula wanting his bride, his bride in this example is the outsider. She is the yardstick of his unattainable success. In the case of, uh, I guess, I don't actually know about the, the canonical Frankenstein, but like, in the case of Frankenstein, as imagined in pop culture, at least some of the time, those outsiders are, you know, the medical community that scoffed at me. And in the case of, say, one of their example villains, a thespian, it is the, the high society, theater-going elite, at last accepting him as a truly great actor. Which, of course, they never will. No, which, of course, they never will. The game does not account for a case in which the villain achieves his goals. In fact, the game specifically says, this can't happen, but it is more fun if you allow it to get close. So, toy with that. We could, perhaps, have toyed with that better than we did. Although, if I'm honest, I'm not dead sure when. Our villain was a brain because, for me, I pushed towards brain because I was like, you know what? Talking. Let's make a yeah. talky villain. Then we can have big talky conflicts because those seem a little more closely supported by the mechanics as they exist than beastlier ones. I'm not sure that that's really true, but it's certainly, it's a little bit less of a jump. Either way, each kind of conflict just boils down to describe some dramatic things happening and some dramatic things happen. So probably the dice rolls are the same <laughs> either way. Yeah. And ours was a teacher, which is the kind of villain that it cares about bringing their ideology to the world. In the case of a brain, it's ideological evangelism as usually understood. In the case of beast teachers, it's often getting the world to see why the perversities and horrors that they find beautiful or good are in fact beautiful and good. 
It is you know, bringing the world into alignment with their pleasures. Appreciate my art! And ours started as math, got a little bit of a mixture of astronomy. I actually really like our villain. His name is Augustus Theophilius Demeter. Yeah, Augustus Theophilius Demeter. A take on, like, wonky astronomies of the era, sacred geometry mystics, a person who wanted to bring the world into literal geometric alignments of very specific kinds in accordance with an obscure equation that only he knew or understood in order to establish karmic resonance with the counter-earth, the anti-terra. Not karmic resonance, harmonic resonance. Harmonic resonance, excuse me. Jeez, Charles. say karmic because it was a sense in which it was like moral resonance enforced through the arrangement of physical and like biological parts. Which is an impressively abstract goal, and I think we mostly got away with that part. Yeah, because that was his want, is to bring the Earth in harmony with this counter-Earth anti-Terra. But his need was to just be like, oh, that house needs to not be there, we need to knock down that house. Oh, that person needs to not be there, we need to take out that person. Okay, so this occurs to me now, which is a bit unfortunate. But it just doesn't fucking make sense from no, a little mechanics point of view. No, it doesn't make sense. No, it does not. <laughs> It just doesn't work. It's okay. It's bad science. This is why the master can never accomplish his goals. <laughs> I guess two brief points. First of all, would you have been more satisfied if they were doing some kind of impossible, like, raising the dead via electricity thing? Yes. Okay. That's biology. I don't care about biology. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I should have realized. Second one. The motions is... of the heavens are sublime and fixed <laughs> and eternal and governed by transcendental laws. Which is exactly what our villain thought. It's possibly the case, and I do like our villain, that you might be better served by a villain that can accomplish goals that you can see sometimes, if that makes sense. Because the way that our villain worked is more or less, he would tell you to do a thing and it would be seemingly nonsense and then you would do a thing. And you couldn't really tell if you had affected the plan one way or the other, which is fine for what we were doing. But in the terms of like, if it was a Frankenstein and you're like, hey, I need you to collect these body parts and then you could see them put those body parts together and do something. That is at least like, they've accomplished a short term goal and you see a reaction from that. And that has sort of furthered the villain's plot in a meaningful way, which might be useful for these kinds of things. I bet that's probably fun. And we even talked about during villain creation, like one of the nice things about the grand concordance equation is that realistically any sort of villainy that we want to justify as necessary for the master to order becomes justifiable because you can always hand wave it at the equation, which means that in terms of getting to test out the corners of the system without having to break flavor on our villain, we'd set ourselves a very easy task. But yeah, definitely a villain with more concrete, achievable goals accomplished in ways that can directly affect the existing setting, probably going to be a little bit more resonant. Ours was a, a combination of uh, love for abstract villainy and a willingness to write math. one that would be easier. Yeah, and math! <laughs> the outsiders for our villain were a, a group of people who were also strong believers in anti-terra and strong believers that anti-terra was a paradise, but they did not believe that you could make anti-terra and earth come into concordance with each other. You just had to wait for it to happen. <laughs> so we were apocalyptic accelerationists. We sure were. As opposed to the predestinationist mainstream anti-terran cultists. 
sellouts. Look, one of my favorite things about slightly historical settings is getting to make up the kind of bullshit that probably would have gained a mild intellectual following. So once you have your master, you make the master's minions. And this is another system that I pretty much like. Your minion statting is extremely simple. You get three total character points, which you distribute between self-loathing and weariness. You have two characters that you can possibly make <laughs> numerically. Uh, you can stat between zero and three, so that, that number is higher. Oh, you can? Yes. yes. I didn't know that you could put a zero in there. Yeah, you can. Yeah. You can zero. It's okay. The combinatorics are still pretty simple. Yeah. That having been said, it's okay. There are three possible characters you can make. Four. I would count it as four. Sorry. But you have... You can min-max. Yeah. In addition to those uh, four possible combinations of stats, you have two connections to townspeople. And those are the people with whom you will try and cultivate love. And love is sort of your third stat that you gain over the course of the game. And love determines your ability to resist your master and in resisting him to eventually overthrow him and trigger the end game. The most interesting part, and definitely the part that makes the fact that there are four possible ways to be numerically distinct a forgivable sin in my eyes, is the more than human, less than human system. Because minions are, in this game, always both more than human and less than human. You're a grotesque hunchback. Swinging from the rafters of the belfry? Belfters. The... They're belfters when they're in a belfry. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're a grotesque hunchback swinging from the bell at the top of the church tower. You're a grotesque hunchback throwing a switch to electrocute a corpse. You're a grotesque hunchback doing some... Basically, you're a grotesque hunchback. And uh, this is where we should maybe just put a pin in the fact that there is an intrinsically problematic thing about grotesqueness and disability and stuff here that that we should talk about before we're done talking about this game. Taken down before Um, I was done with Emmanuel is, I think we have to talk about this game's dialogue with ability. Yeah. Its approximate standpoint is, and this is, again, like, it's a game from 2003. Like, we are a decade plus on, and I don't think that this game could be written by the same people today without making note of this. But it appears to approximately go, like, we're working in genre. Don't ask too many questions as far as, like, its feelings about disability, about deformity, and the like. But, yeah, we should we should put a pin in that discussion, but we definitely need to have it. But the central defining duality of your minion is that your minion is both more than human and less than human. They are less than human because their intrinsically monstrous nature impairs them from connecting or communicating with other people, and at the same time gives them abilities that normal people don't have. And when we say nature, we don't necessarily mean personality or anything like that. We do mean, like... You know, you're a you're a hunchback. We do mean like disability, or you have a curse on you, or something like that. We don't mean like, oh, you're a bad person, and that makes it hard to connect with other people. You are a person who is essentially human. You want love. You don't want to do bad things, particularly. Though I would say I played a minion whose strengths and weaknesses are more psychological than physical. That's true. And that less than humanity is always. You get a block in your character sheet, and the, the recommended way to put it down is, you know, X, major, large, downside, deformity, inability, problem, uh, except when, and some small case where instead of being horrifically awful at something, 
you are uh, merely up to normal. One of the examples in the rulebook, which I really like, is that your character is mute, except when singing hymns. And my character was afflicted with a speech deformity that caused him to necessarily include an escalating series of numbers in each successive sentence, uh, except when he's drunk, which actually was a lot of fun to roleplay, but uh, I, I, we can probably talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, but it's also basically just roleplaying a character with an obsessive-compulsive disorder. Yep. Yep. I, no, I, there's I, a way in which it's slightly we're fucked just up. We're doing that. No, yeah, I'm, I, I, I was playing a character with a movie version of an obsessive-compulsive disorder. Yeah. Like, there's no two ways about it, unfortunately. Yeah, and I was... I was roleplaying an older woman who can't stop herself from crying. So, I was roleplaying an anime character. <laughs> I, I'm not totally comfortable with the minions as characters in this game. I, gosh, I'm, I'm not normally the first person to say this, but... Except that other time when I was the first person to say this, but something about it doesn't quite sit right with me. I mean, the phrasing less than human is certainly... Yeah. Uh, I mean, more than human, less than human. It's a nice pairing. It's rhetorically elegant. But and, even so, like if you want to... I wanna... mean, we, we, can begin, we can begin a defense this way, which goes, this game is a game that centers the minion as protagonist. It was always going to bring into rather sharp relief the way that that character's less-than-humanity and status as a side character made for a really shitty trope. And we are one step above that trope because we are raising them all up to individual protagonists, the rules, that's their wording. But at the same time, in keeping the less-than-humanity that was constitutive of the trope before, it's just, it just shows up in relief now. Certainly, I think that if you want to avoid having to think or talk or deal with the politics of ability in this game, just settle for curses. Curses are fine. Yeah, no, you can you can call it that character's curse. Yeah, you can, or, or like, you turn into stone unless some such and such condition is met. But fine. Yeah, and that is also one of the examples. Yeah. But certainly, like... It just becomes less clear how to talk about being hunchbacked with a limp as less than human yeah i know that sure is something and i understand like more than human less than human is a way to make them certainly seem like let's say monstrous characters because that is what i think it wants you to do but the fact that it includes in there like normal things that normal people actually uh, have actually in the have real world. and have to deal with in the real world is not great i mean that's because the most recognizable immediate example of this character is that yeah yes so so that is a genre problem, but it also becomes a game problem. <laughs> At a basic level, as far as character generation, though, I find myself extremely fond of thinking of a character flaw as broad, debilitating flaw with small exception. I think that's a pretty okay way to set down a flaw, especially because finding a good system for flaws that affect gameplay consistently but not cripplingly is something that a lot of games have to go looking for. I think this basic construction system, large flaw, small exception, where you get to be normal, is actually a pretty good one. I like that about it. And the converse is, of course, large advantage, fairly small exception. And small exception where you are merely normal. To use my character as an example again, my character had perfect recall and reckoning of physical spaces, except about churches. So he can tell you exactly how tall and wide things are and where everything is in a house, but churches just baffle him. Which again, like another way in which this character is actually just sort of like, if you want to be uncharitable, I played a Rain Man. And I, I did too. 
Yeah. Wednesday played a Rain Man with like severe porphyria. And I, I, I tried to play it as like a slightly eerie compulsion and one that in my mind was at least slightly supernatural. But like at the end of the day, I I put together a movie version of a person with like a cognitive like divergence. I mean, there's something to be said for the fact that in the world that serves as the backdrop for this kind of game, those things are not understood as being... It's not that all any of those things are understood as being normal in the 21st century world we live in, but they are understood as being natural. Rather than prima are, facie evidence of witchcraft. Yeah, nobody's right. even necessarily trying to accept them in 1805. Do you guys want to talk about your characters? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I've, I've certainly brought mine up enough, yeah. So I played, my character's name was Agnesia Schmidt. She was the master's housekeeper and former governess and sort of surrogate mother. And to be uncharitable, I played his abused elderly mother who cried all the time. You sure did. Yep. I think she was a good character. There's a lot of interesting dramatic conflict between this character who looks on sort of protectively and subserviently because she has a vested interest in the health, well-being, and success of a character who is arguably evil. And I think that's a, a good concept. I think that works, and you can tell interesting stories with that. But it's not a nice character. I think it's maybe a less immediately problematic character than than Charles's, but I don't totally feel okay about that character it's it's feels like an unfair caricature of I mean, people to, i've met in real life to what extent does this discussion end up boiling down to the minion quatrope is problematic and there is nothing that we can do to play the genre while fully avoiding the problems with that trope because I, I, I suspect that we may have no escape i, I mean I, curses and homunculi actual magic we went a bit we can just all be fantastic yeah. yeah right but at that point aren't we in a sense, not actually engaging with material that's essential to the genre. Like, isn't the defense of this, well, actually, these characters are these things in these stories, because that's actually a pretty important part of how the world was seen at the time and by the people originating this kind of fiction. I do think that to make the minions non-human or to make them humans but cursed or to, you know, to do anything that just flat out avoids any politics of disability, any politics of mental health is in some ways avoiding some of our most classic examples. It is avoiding Igor. It is avoiding Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I think that there is a certain like flavorful, problematic richness there, but I don't feel terrible about avoiding it, I think. Like, is the story you tell really measurably more twisted if all of the master's servants are, like, homunculi that they have made versus, like, people sworn to their service for bad reasons? I don't really think it's much worse. There's also a question of what, what status to assign these judgments about what stories are. I mean, is it calling a spade a spade, or is it calling a spade that black bastard to call this, like, political correctness? Because it, it does, in fact, feel that way to me, though I don't mean it as an insult as it's usually intended, but I'm, I'm tempted by the phrase. What status do we assign to these, let's call them for the moment, political correctness judgments? Because a possible reason these are not addressed, like, at the level of the rulebook or at the level of the manual is that... I don't think the designers want to limit the game and be like, all right, so 
When we say you're building a Dr. Frankenstein and Igor simulator, let's just be clear. You shouldn't play Igor. That's weird and fucked up. Because, like, that feels almost slightly outside the purview of the game designer to say. Like, almost. To give me a system for telling these sorts of stories and then explicitly limit out some fairly large, fairly central examples of the subset of stories that they would be talking about. I think it's worth noting that uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, it, there's a story about redeeming the humanity of that character. This fiction, given that the mechanics that the game set up for you to win by achieving connection and love despite the things that are impediments is in a sense implicitly critical of setting those persons as separate or different. Yeah, I, I do think that's baked in at the level of mechanics. I think it's possible that without necessarily cutting everything out of the game, they could, the game maybe uh, would be improved by just like a little section in the rule book talking about, you know, to be aware of what you're doing and how this is a thing that is partially brought about by the setting and partially brought about by the genre conventions and how that interacts with real life or whatever. Like, just enough to make sure that you're all thinking about it as you go into it. That may be good. Charles and I are simultaneously reminded, as we can tell, as, as our eyes meet across the table, of that section in the rulebook for Abnormal, which is, a, for those of you who haven't listened to the episode, it's a, a body horror game that has a little section in the end talking about, like, look, a lot of body horror is about making abnormal bodies making unusual bodies, like, even worse. There's a lot of rape in this shit. There's a lot of pregnancy in this shit. First of all, be aware of this. Be warned about it. And second of all, try to do better. And there's a way in which I think that my life with Master is already trying to do better because you're playing these characters and you want them to succeed. And you're playing out the way that they try, try to be people, try to get love. But on the other hand, yeah, I do think that some sort of, like, conversation would be nice. Carrie has it that the game gives you characters you want to succeed, but let's talk actually about what that looks like. The game has a defined endpoint. The endpoint is the overthrow and death of the master. And after that endpoint, depending on the distributions of an assortment of numbers in the game, one of five possible epilogues are available to the character. And for a given minion, the options are either you flee and give up, you're killed, you destroy yourself, you emerge from the ashes of the endgame as a force of capital F fear uh, in his or her own right, which is to say you become a master, uh, or, in the last possible case, you integrate into the society of the townspeople. So at the moment, we're moving into mechanics, which is, I think, a thing that we should absolutely move into. But I just want to say one more thing before we leave, which is this entire conversation we've had about, like, how this game reflects on, you know, again, the politics of disability and stuff like that, uh, the time period, is among the stuff that is really fun and exciting about this game. It's among the stuff that's really appealing about this game. It's among the reasons that I chose to GM this game. So this game has a lot of things that are really great about it, and we are about to, I think, move into a very critical person of the podcast, but I just want to foreground, before we do that, the reasons that this game seems rad as hell. Actually, before before we do that, there's another point that I think is relevant of the previous discussion. That's something that's also, I think, a question about this game is whether you are playing it for comedy or seriously. I actually would take specific exception with... There's a, a cartoon of a rape uh, on, like, page two of the book... It's not totally clear that it's a rape, but I think it's extremely reasonable to read it as a rape. The minion is holding a, a knife at a woman's throat and, and another on one, a but bed. It, 
It looks to me and like they're abducting her. That is plausibly a rape in the sense of a seizing and abduction, but uh, conceivably not in the sexual assault sense. But I, I don't think the reading is unreasonable, yeah. I want to be clear. I, I only want to know that others are available. And if they wanted it to not look like it was a sexual assault, they should have been more fucking careful. And so I think the question overall of whether you play the whole business for comedy or for tragedy is an important one. And if you play this game strictly for comedy, I think you're missing... I will just go ahead and say a more valuable or more meaningful way of engaging with this material. It's not to say that these things can't be comedic or that you can't put in sort of comedy of errors in the minions trying and failing to... Abduct the requisite number of children? I mean, no, to like connect with the townspeople. Mm. But you specifically have to be careful at how you try and make that comedy happen. We didn't go in a comedic direction, really, yeah. in the game we played, but... You could very quickly end up with a kind of comedy that's entirely based upon laughing at your character's failing, which is not great. That kind of makes me feel shitty. Like, I don't think it's funny. It's built into this game. It's supposed to be is, sad. Is, is the failure of comedy in the way that we now begin to laugh at the less than human? Yeah. There's not, in your mind, a way to excavate the comedy of bumbling minions serving incompetently? Oh, you totally can, but okay. you just have to be careful about the comedy that you write. Okay. Because the player and the GM are authors, and you have a role in authoring the story. I'm enjoining the player to choose one rather than the other, okay. because they're both available. A big part of this game is having the minions go to townspeople that they feel connected to and make overtures. Try to do things to basically, like, earn these people's love, to display their own love, and... You know, that can be as bumbling and awkward and stupid as you want it to be. If you were so inclined, you know, you could play a minion who is so back-assward and so incompetent that they are like, Oh, I know what I will do. I will present my loved one with poop and that will be the thing they like. Yay! You know, you could really play it just like stupid and awful and without sympathy or you could play it sad but also sort of funny like there's an example in the book that i really like where somebody is trying to approach their loved one with like a skinned rabbit because he knows like oh she's hungry she needs a rabbit but like that's sort of a like gross and weird thing to do and he sort of like throws the rabbit at her and runs away and like that's a comedic scene but it's also a sympathetic scene so i think you cannot lose sympathy whereas the sort of very traditional, like, Frankenstein's monster grabs someone or kidnaps someone that they've sort of fallen in love with in a horrible misunderstanding has to be tragic. Like, you can't make that funny because it's not funny. It's intrinsically tragic. The minion is actually doing something wrong. They're doing it out of love, but they're still... No, oh, that's an awful a, thing. A violation doing. of someone else's person. Yeah. And that's bad and you have to play that seriously and it's very easy to fall into writing stories that look a lot like this where you do that but then try and keep making that comedic there's an episode of x-men evolution that does this and i'm thinking of this just because jay tears it apart on the jay reviews x-men evolution side project of jay and miles explain the x-men 
a fantastic podcast that you should be listening to. This is the second time um, that podcast has been plugged during ours. Um, <laughs> it's so, uh, a bigger podcast than us. They don't need us. But yeah. We do really like them. They're great. But you can run into that problem. And it is definitely especially difficult and especially dangerous, I guess, in a game like this where you are dealing probably a lot of the time with disabled characters. So watch Often the fairly hell profoundly out disabled ones, yep. yeah. Watch the hell out for that. I think the system is agnostic about whether it wants to be a sincere game or a funny game or somewhere in like the tragicomic middle. I think uh, it is shooting for that tragicomic middle. The, the art direction such as it is seems to aim towards that tragicomic middle. Yeah, all I know is, and I should make a confession at this point, that I'm the one sitting at this table who did not read the rules to this game. Death um, of the author, death of the author. But just looking at it, the first paragraph is, Dear reader, take warning, go not incautiously forward into these pages. Which seems to make it feel like it is potentially shooting more for the tragedy. But I guess it, it does end with, will you laugh? If you like that sort of thing, so... Yeah, the rules open with, like, a proto-trigger warning. But it's also a trigger warning delivered in, like highfalutin faux historic prose and that sort of warning to the reader that there are moral perils within which you ought not to take lightly when you do it like that that's played for comedy but right. at the same time it True. addresses some sincerely possibly disturbing features of the game the rules are in a really weird place I, the tragic comic middle seems the most likely but i'm wondering if i'm saying that just because there is evidence pointing both ways and therefore i go like well surely they intended both halves of that could just be falling into the standard intellectual trap of, is it this thing or is it the opposite? Why not both? <laughs> Surely a synthesis or a middle ground. Matt Stone and Trey Parker, this is at you specifically. If I have to deal with another lifetime of nerds, I don't know what to say about this. So yeah, I played Florentine Catterfield, who was... I already described her as an anime character. That is not actually uh, a poor description. <laughs> she was, like, taken by the master at some kind of young age, presumably. She was his protege, kind of his student. She was a fanatic about anti-Terra, but also didn't know about a lot of things about normal life. And also, her skin burned in the sun. She wore a lot of very silly, very gothy outfits, because that's how they do it on Anti-Terra. So the way that play works in this game is that there is a GM, and that GM was me! And the GM basically, once the characters are created, once the master is created, the GM basically starts setting up scenes and starts being like, okay, so the master's gonna tell you to do this, and you can resist that order or not, but you probably aren't going to be able to without advancing the game further, so probably go do the thing. There's going to be a brief scene where you try to do the thing, or you can try to make an overture to the connection so you can try to get love from them. Interestingly, when you try to make overtures, if you succeed, great, good, you have some love, nothing bad happens. But if you fail, you do get love, but your self-loathing also increases, so there is also a bad thing. And self-loathing ends up being one of the most important stats in the game that we're going to talk more about later. But unlike a lot of other games with GMs, each scene only has one character in it, more or less. There are conditions under which you can have more than one character in a scene, but we never triggered those conditions. And so you just go around doing scenes until eventually somebody resists the master and the game starts to end. At this point where we're talking about the way in which play is delegated, I think it is finally at last time to begin the real deep dive of this, which is the way in which math ends up betraying the systems. 
because it starts here. And it actually starts a little bit earlier. We can, I bet you're wondering how we got here. Well, it all started about an hour ago as we were in the midst of putting together the setting. And we tried to assign values to fear and reason. Two perfectly innocent numbers on which the game manual suggests only the following things. One, fear is the rating of the overall fearful presence and forcefulness of the master. It is the closest thing they have to a stat. Five and above is high. How high is 10? Who knows? 15? Also available, but a higher than five, that's high. And three or lower, that's kind of lowish. Cool. Good advice on fear. Thanks. Reason is a representation of the influence of the townsfolk on the setting. If it's higher than fear, making connections when you make overtures becomes more likely. That's it. But also that if you have high reason relative to fear, that's probably likely to make a shorter game. We knew that we were going to play this game in only one session, and the manual does have advice on how to do this. Namely, do set those values in a way that would suggest that the game would be shorter. Do give everybody some love to start out with, and don't, like, sit around building character for a while. Just jump straight into more drastic things. I will say that I really appreciated the fact that this game was like, look, this is meant to be played in multiple sessions, but if you only want to play it in one session, here's some advice. I'm not sure if that advice panned out, but I like that they tried. Just for the record, for the reference of our listeners, the process of character creation and master creation took us about an hour and a half. Yep. Which is, I think, not terrible for building a setting, villain, and three characters from scratch, but there's sort of no way to come prepared to this game. The master and the minions are so closely intertwined that the ability to, like, come to the game and just sort of sit down and go for it is unusually absent for a fairly compact storytelling game. I mean, as the GM, you could be more prepared in advance. You could sit down and be like, okay, I'm going to make the master. It's going to be me. And then present your master to your players and be like, all right, now create minions in relation to me. And that's a way to have that work. But I certainly thought that master creation was the most fun part of this game, so I wouldn't really want to take it away from the group. Yeah, yeah. That's a regretful thing to have to say, but I think you're right. I had the most fun when we're putting together a master. Yeah. So can I just dive into the deep dive into what's mechanically broken with this game? Uh, welcome to the huge dice. Let's, yeah. If ideally, for continuity reasons, if nothing else, we can start with that, like, okay, Here. so you kind of get to choose what scene you're having each time. Because I think it sort of spirals outward from there. But right. it spirals out, I think, first from fear and reason. So there are five numbers in this game. Mm-hmm. Fear and reason are global values. They describe the scenario or the world you're playing in. They're sort of a stand-in for how dangerous is the master and how strong are the townspeople, but only vaguely. And they basically never change. They never change. I mean, there are conditions which make them change. Right. But they basically never change. Then each character has essentially three stats from a mechanical point of view. They have self-loathing, weariness, and love. Love will be broken out into love values assigned to different connections, but that's not actually relevant. What actually matters is the total love that you have. Now, self-loathing and weariness both start low and increase as the game goes on. Self-loathing and love increase a lot, weariness increases somewhat. The rules of the game are of the form, in this circumstance, roll this combination of stats and compare it to this other combination of stats. 
whichever is higher based on n d4 minus 1s, which always creates a distribution between 0 and something, and you're comparing it to another roll of a dice pool constructed in an analogous way. Sometimes it's a combination of stats of a form of a plus b, sometimes it's of a form a minus b. Usually the minion gets the one with the minus in it. It's hard out there for a minion. I think that's almost in the rules verbatim. Yeah. There's an important caveat, which is if the size of your dice pool would be zero or negative, you still roll one die. What this means is that there's a bunch of cases where you bottom out and you just roll one d4. To end the game, you must have more love than fear plus weariness. Now, fear is a constant that we've picked at the beginning of the game. Love is earned every time you take a make overtures to connections action, regardless of whether you succeed or fail that test. However, if you fail a make overtures to connections action, you take a point of self-loathing. All of the tests where you roll love, the master rolls self-loathing. The problem with this game basically stems from that one fact. So if probabilistically I succeed my action, I'm going to gain fewer points of love than I am points of self-loathing no matter what. Because if I always gain self-loathing and I sometimes gain love, despite the fact that there's then another rule that caps your total self-loathing that makes your self-loathing not increase, every time you get a point of love, it becomes able to increase again. The upshot of which is your self-loathing is always going to be higher than your love probabilistically. Probabilistically, if we don't account for the two things the game provides you to try and combat this trend. The first of which is that when it's your turn for a scene, what is the exact notion just if I say I want X type scene, that's what I get? Or is there... This is one of the places where I'd read the rules, Hugh had read the rules, Charles had read the rules, and my understanding was definitely like, once it's time for a player's turn... I, the GM, turn to that player and say, okay, do you have anything in mind? And if the player says, no, I don't have anything in mind, which is to say, no, I don't have an overture and I don't have an order that I need to carry out, then I say, okay, great. And I have the master issue them an order. So one way to beat that self-loathing increases most of the time, love increases some of the time spread is to, when it is your turn, always say, oh yeah, I have something in mind. I'm making an overture. And that is a moment at which the game My Life with Master rapidly begins to sideline the master. I want to correct this because love increases every time you take that action, but most of the time self-loathing also increases. But you start with some self-loathing. Yeah. You don't start with love, though we did start with love unofficially in, case, in yeah. this game. And self-loathing is always rolled in combination with fear, which is a constant. Yep. And the problem you run into is that for high fear, love minus self-loathing, while it does grow with time, potentially, Mm -hmm. is unlikely to be bigger than fear. That delta has to grow so fast that over the course of play, it begins to It eclipses the effect of fear on the roll. Yeah. And that just, it doesn't work. And it doesn't work, especially because it's possible to acquire self-loathing in other ways. Yeah. In short, there are two kinds of scenes in this game. Scenes where you make one roll to try to establish a connection, and scenes in which you make one or two rolls to either attempt to disobey the master and fail, because you will fail for most of the game until you win, or obey them and then do an awful thing. In these scenes where you do an awful thing to somebody because you're a minion of evil, you gain self-loathing. Most of the time in scenes, you have about a 50% chance of gaining self-loathing in scenes where you attempt to gain love. This means... 
that self-loathing grows faster than love because half the time you are never going to gain love and the other half the time you are always going to gain love but you might also gain self-loathing yep it doesn't work to be clear the model is true for players taking scene choice and, and flipping a coin the only way to beat that spread to make it so that eventually the force of love in your life overpowers the pre-existing constant that is fear is to do a lot of time doing connections and then suddenly you have a game about being evil minions of like a bad guy in a tower where you want to spend most of your time making friends right and this game degenerates to one of two extremes in one extreme it's just player choice about how the game winds up because i just choose that i'm going to spend all of my time developing a heartwarming story about how i made friends with everyone in the village and therefore my love status super high or alternatively i try and play by the rules in which inevitable math forces me to lose i'm just as the player picking the mechanics are not actually doing anything for me they're creating a process that i simply carry out you never make mechanical choices in this game you just choose what scenes you're going to play mm-hmm. there is i think one mechanical choice maybe that i guess we underused that was but we gave it as much time as the rules gave it yeah and interestingly it's one of the other things that serves to beat back against the statistical model because it is one of the choices you can make as a role player that has mechanical import. Sometimes you can just choose to roll extra dice because you felt like it. Yep. It's just a little bit more complicated than that. You can choose to roll extra dice because you're enacting certain emotions. There are three bonus dice and only one can be rolled per conflict. There is a d4, which is intimacy. You're trying to be intimate with. Whoever this, you're contesting with. And that's giving you an advantage. There's a d6 that is desperation, so you're so desperate that that gives you an advantage. And then there's a D8, which is sincerity. Notably, the master or the opposition, in other words, the GM, can roll one of these dice, but they can never roll sincerity. Which is flavorful. Or the GM can never roll, yeah. roll sincerity. The but master is never sincere. totally irrelevant. I mean... The thing that means that you're likely to make connections, because we spent most of the game with our make connections rolls, our dice pools bottomed out against one. their dice pools bottomed one out. One against one. But if I'm rolling 2d4 to beat 1d4, my odds are pretty good. Yeah. And so that's one thing that helps you beat the spread. But you basically just choose to do that. Mechanically, a game where the only decision point is, would I like to win or not, is... Ooh. Really? You're being, you're being a much more mechanical role player here than I usually find you to be. I think that... Many games want a way for, you know, a moment of high drama or a moment of particular personal import to be represented different mechanically. Like, yeah, of course I'm trying to serve Master now, but this time, because of what happened yesterday, I'm desperate. And, like, we'd like to be able to represent that within the mechanics of the game. And at this point, at least in 2003, I don't think that we had a system better than, uh, or at the very least, this designer did not arrive at a system better than, I feel that my character is truly and correctly desperate in this instance and therefore deserves to invoke the dice, and players police each other so that this ability to just get a free plus N to your role doesn't get abused. And I think that's a decision that all sorts of role-playing games have to make, and I don't find myself intrinsically opposed to, I think this is a moment of high drama, particular import, unusual desperation, and therefore. Right, but in most game systems that's coupled with a finite resource. Hero points, courage yeah. points, I... destiny points, fate. Yep. Like, there are entire game systems built around an economy of such points. Fate, for example. <laughs> this simply relies on if you can write 
the character into that situation, you can use it. And you can, without intending to manipulate the game to your advantage, simply by, like, looking at the systems of the game and I'm, the premise I'm playing a particularly flighty and timorous minion. I'm desperate a lot of the time. Right. Yeah, and I don't know why you're not desperate a lot of the time, especially because, like... Oh, I've, I've asked you to kill somebody. Oh, I'm desperate not to kill somebody. Right. I really don't want to do that. The, the Sincerely. Sincerely. <laughs> the stakes in this game are intrinsically so high that all of those are perfectly reasonable emotions to be feeling. And I'm genuinely sincere when I'm trying to connect with people, if I am actually trying. And most and connections necessarily imply at least an opportunity for some kind of intimacy so, I'm sorry, I'm not even yeah, trying very hard, but I can write those into every action my character takes in the entire game. Yeah, no, and I, and I think the notion is supposed to be, and it's, it's not, it isn't present in the manual, but I think it's going, it ends up being there in, if I can evoke something criminally vague, like the milieu, you don't just take the free plus one every time because it's there. You hear about the story first, and you use the mechanics to serve that fundamental interest in story. And if you're not using them that way, if you try and munchkin this game, you're right. It's trivially easy to munchkin the extra bonus plus N for saying that you were stressed today into your role every time. And I think it is only your respect for the story that your friends are telling and a desire to keep those to the moments when they are most impactful that holds you in check. I guess part of the problem that I have is I don't understand how you tell the difference between sincerity that deserves a role and sincerity that doesn't deserve a role. Shouldn't you roll sincerity every single time you're making an overture? Like, what I'm not sincerity? lying, so am I sincere today? No, it's not that. It's not, I'm not lying. It's that I'm honestly trying to connect with you. I'm trying really hard to connect with you. I'm a misshapen monster, and I'm really doing my best to be friends with you. I don't know why that's not sincerity every time. That's the premise of the game. That's what we have already decided is narratively important. So it's going to happen all the time. So like Carrie's saying, I don't see how you ever decide not to use that. This and is a non-replenishing resource. It right. definitely accomplishes that goal. I guess the, we, we perhaps divide as game designers here in that I'm adequately willing to trust players to say like, well... I guess it must mean extraordinary sincerity or extraordinary But that would be perfectly easy to convey in the text, and they chose not to do that. I think that's so, a fair criticism. So what I would say is, a game whose mechanics are so fragile that it would be equally easy to not have the mechanics and just go around in a circle telling a story until we're done is not actually adding anything as a game in its mechanics. There's wonderful stuff to be had in this game in its distillation of a certain genre into a set of schema and typologies and a method for creating a mm -hmm. situation. But, but how there much, is nothing yeah. to be said for its mechanics. For how, how, much is, how much game. is gained by the addition of the rolling of dice? I think that actually the opportunity to try and resist master and not know going into the interaction whether you will fail is probably the one point at which I need a conflict resolution mechanic. Yeah. And actually, similarly, I, I think it saves its conflict resolution mechanics for those few places that most require them. If people were infinitely patient, I think there's a cool version of this game that lets you have more scenes that don't involve roles because... You're right, you can just tell the story among the crowd that way, and really you only need to know, like, well, I really want to try and impress that girl. <laughs> and it needs to be in fate's hands for just a moment, whether it works. 
And that's true. It's just that if you're going to put mechanics in my damn game, I want them to work. <laughs> we can get into mechanics that flat out don't when we talk about endgame. Because, yeah, I'm the apologist for some of these mechanics because they are the ones that help the game as it is played beat the spread in the, the sheer statistical model. But I don't want to come out too strongly in favor. I want to say one more thing about mechanics from a GM perspective. I think we've made it clear that love is a precious resource. And that it is... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, go on. (laughs) Acquired through rolling dice. Yeah. Also, you do those? Love worlds are always opposed. That's weird and dark. Uh, It really feels like they're struggling against me. Like the object of my affection wins when they're able to rebuff me. Uh, which and actually, well, I think it's in, you're in, rolling in, against fear. You're rolling overture, not love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they love you, but it, the question is, do they accept you? So, love is a precious resource, and it is what causes you to end the game. Hugh said earlier that it doesn't matter who your love is attached to, but it kind of does because one of the things that is specifically called out, especially in the shorter game, is. As a GM, if you want a shorter game, if you want a game with higher tension, if you want a game where things are really ramped up, have the master order minions to kill or harm the connections of other minions. And if a connection dies, all of their love is gone. Love dies with them. Love dies with them. Which mechanically, again, so because the end point of the game is foretold, it feels like a game with winners and losers. I'm ready now for role-playing games that have those. But in point of fact... There are a lot of numbers getting higher or lower where all it actually means is you have to play more rounds of the game before you're allowed to end it. Killing a connection doesn't make the game harder. It doesn't bring the master's plan closer to completion as measured relative to the rebellion and the minions. It just means that for however many tick marks for love you have on your sheet, that many rounds of play are, mechanically at least, invalidated. And as a GM... If you want to, you can really fuck shit up this way. Because if a minion is ordered to do something by a master and is unable to resist that order, they have to try to do it. They fucking must. So if somebody has, like, you know, eight goddamn love points invested in somebody, I can just be like, hey, somebody else, go kill them. And they have to try. It's also, by the construct of the game, very hard to fail roles to do violence. When you're your a minion, self-loathing is added. When you're a minion trying to do violence, you roll fear plus self-loathing. And if you succeed, you gain self-loathing, making you better at doing it the next time. Right. So I did want to point out, there is actually one rule that didn't come into play, which is that there is a rule for player versus player roles. Yeah. Fear plus self-loathing versus fear plus self-loathing. It's like all other violence, but it's... My violence on your violence, yeah. I, it's hard to imagine that coming up in our game, because we never met each other. <laughs> Which is another weird thing about we the, like... reference to each other in conversation. Yeah. <laughs> the structure that the rulebook implies that you should take to playing it is to do one scene per player quickly, and that those scenes should basically boil down to one role happens, and the circumstances in which the role is made, and the results of the role are described. And then you get the hell out of Dodge and you move on. Which is, as things go, a pretty decent solution to a game that wants an amount of mechanical and storyline isolation among characters to be important. There is no solidarity among minions. And I do think that because it's only one role, and because you're basically either carrying something out or making an overture, the scenes are pretty brisk. 
I didn't actually keep track, but I think on average it seemed like every person was waiting like maybe five minutes. So we have three players, so each scene takes like two and a half minutes or something like that. That's a lot of waiting time. That's a lot of waiting time. So I'm not saying like, that's great, but I am saying, well, look, the scenes are pretty brisk. But unfortunately, we can make the game cycle faster, but you can never beat the hard, fast fact of one-third time spent playing to two-thirds time spent waiting. And you can make that one-third real small and those two-thirds also real small, but that ratio persists, and that ratio has a noose around the neck of player focus, depending on how good you are at player focus. I think I'm unusually bad, so I really felt it. I felt it was tolerable. This game did better at actually keeping the scenes really actually very short than a lot of games I've played. I think it's actually it is, surprising. It is no penny for your thoughts, which had this problem in spades uh. <laughs> towards its later acts. It comes surprisingly close to be like old school D&D, just go around the table a million times asking everybody what they do, sort of circuit of how you play a game. It does sort of also detract from the telling a story aspect of things sometimes, though, because, like, we're all in the same setting, and presumably we all know each other, but the way that we're all carrying out our separate scenes makes it often the case that these scenes are just very disconnected. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's the sort of thing that you probably you probably can overcome with sufficiently good GMing and role-playing, but we, people who at this point must call ourselves experienced at least a little, I don't think we pulled off that trick. I mean, like, look, if you play this game multiple times, you can probably play it better than we played it. If but. we played many of the games we play multiple times we could probably play them better than we played them the first time oh goodness probably but oh, I'm so sure. also, I, I think this one would be unusually responsive to player skill on this i would also make a general point about this podcast which is that we are playing things for the first time and that's not a perfect test of what the game is like but it is a good test of how good is the rule book at compelling a certain specific style of play and making it clear how you are supposed to play. Mm -hmm. So it's a valid test of something. Yeah. It's also a valid test of, like, what's a first-time play experience? Everybody has a first-time play experience. Now, if you pick this game up on our recommendation and on this one, I'd be surprised, but, you know, there are games we've said nice things about. You will have to go through a first-time play experience. Time is linear and you're stuck with certain facts. So let's talk about that ending mechanic. Hugh's take on it is, I think, perhaps the harshest in the room, and mine is, at worst, like, wow, every time you make one of your early setting numbers higher, it just means the game is longer and doesn't really mean anything else. It just, statistically speaking, lengthens the game. Where that hits its final and most bizarre nadir is in the end game. Once a minion successfully resists, that is, makes a roll where their love minus their weariness beats the setting constant fear plus whatever their current self-loathing is, you trigger the end game. That has narrative consequences, but we're actually just going to talk mechanical for the moment. The narrative consequences are you're locked in a battle with the master, which you will inevitably succeed at? On a geological timescale, you will succeed. And here's why I have to keep saying that. Because in order to win the life or death struggle with your master, you have to repeat that resist roll. But every time you lose, you gain weariness, which, you may recall, makes the roll harder the next time. So every time you lose, you're likelier to lose again. However, remember, dear listener, that we mentioned that these rolls are made of pools of d4 minus 1s, that is, dice that roll between 0 and 3. 
and that if your total number of dice in your pool would ever be zero or negative, you still roll one die. That means that with the right initial conditions, you can become trapped in a sequence of rolling one die and hoping that your opponent, who is rolling many dice, rolls zero on all of their dice so that you can eventually win forever. It's not even clear in the final master fight whether you're allowed to use the bonus dice. I would argue that it's pretty clear you're not. I would be really surprised if you were. Because spoilers, you're, you're always sincere in that part. <laughs> the thing that you are allowed to do is that other characters are allowed to come to your aid, or the master's aid, if they're dicks. <laughs> if you want to end yours. your real-world friendships, come to the master's aid. Because every time they aid the master, that means you're worsening your chances by a non-trivial amount on every future roll, and the game doesn't get to end until you kill the master. Guys, guys, guys out there in game design land, if you're going to make a fucking game that involves probability distributions, just take, like, one undergraduate class in, like, probability or combinatorics or just something like that, or... Pay real close attention to how dice rolls work. Or alternately, if a statistician looks at your game and says that it is, probabilistically speaking, interminable, like literally the game cannot end, consider redesigning that subsystem. Now, it is worth noting, we should probably part the curtains here for a minute. Confess something. Confess something. The kimono. You get out of here. Uh, Griffin McElroy, how do you get into this room? <laughs> Wait, no. <laughs> You're my favorite. Speaking of podcasts, good, you don't good need podcast our help. Is this beyond you listeners? It's beyond me. So anyways, to make a confession to you, dearest readers, we did not end up playing to the end of this game. We got to the point where uh, Hugh was starting to put the numbers together in his head, and slowly but surely, people came to the conclusion that we didn't fully want to play all this out. It seemed mathematically unsatisfying. A real vector situation. Yeah, and importantly, not fun to continue to iterate scenes just to make the math right. You know, to grind up our stats to the point where the game triggering the end game was endable. Yeah. I will say, I think there is a portion of the game that may give it an interesting feel that we did not get to. I think that there is... A portion of the game where you start getting horror reveal triggers popping up, which is when your self-loathing gets too high, and when you get the struggle with the master kind of taking over the narrative of the game, that were the mechanics of it any good at all, could be a pretty good way of making things sort of get real and feel different and feel darker, and in a different game, maybe I'd be interested to see how that played out. I definitely agree with you. I think that section of the game and what I see these systems trying to do is really interesting. I want to walk back my this is awful, it does nothing critique slightly to like they tried to do a really interesting thing but it fails in this really awful way because I didn't quite understand the math well enough. Which works out to have the same thing in practice, unfortunately, but I don't think it's for a lack of creativity or ambition on the part of the designer. This game remains... A really fucking cool idea, totally stymied by its relationship to mathematics. Which is, I guess, our master's problem, too. Oh no. (laughs) I would go a little farther and say its relationship to the necessity of clear rules that actually specify how you're supposed to play the game. Yeah, that's also true, because, like, going into this game, I had read the rules, 
And I was looking at the fact that, like, oh, we just have to sort of arbitrarily or semi-arbitrarily with some guidelines but not enough set the reason and fear values. And I looked at that and I thought to myself, this seems really hard and I wish that there was more stuff to tell me about this. But there isn't, so I'm not sure if we're going to set the right numbers. And lo and fucking hold, we absolutely did not set the right numbers. And I apologize. I should have realized earlier that we should have adjusted the numbers, but the presentation of this on two pages and me trying to correlate no, it doesn't, the combinations of things you shouldn't and what have increases to figure out how math is. The part where you, at the beginning of the game, assign two art values according to whatever feels good in your heart place, and those values determine so much about the pace and the stage of the game, that's wild. Yeah, your fear just needs to be so low. Like, I took a, a class in college, uh, it was a scientific computation class, and this is a probabilistic system like this either goes to zero or infinity. At some level, you, you measure a whole bunch of, like, state transition probabilities, you make a big fucking matrix, and then you exponentiate the matrix repeatedly, you multiply it against itself, and that makes all of your values go to zero or infinity. That's just... Uh... <laughs> Math. Math. <laughs> All set from the initial conditions and nothing you do matters mechanically. It's awful. Yeah, I also want to say that there is something that makes it so that like, oh, on a long enough timeline, I will get enough love, which is the horror revealed thing, where if ever you have too much self-loathing, basically, instead of having your self-loathing go up, you... You the player. You the player skip your next scene and say like, okay, something awful has happened in the town, which is totally rad, except for the part where you skip your next scene, meaning that like it's going to take you twice as long before you can get more love. Right. More opportunity to play. Yeah. So this is a GM game. I would like to talk for just a second about the experience of GMing this game. First of all... You're the master in this game, and you're a pretty interesting character with, like, pretty big goals. But there's a way in which I think this game is sort of fundamentally unsatisfying from the perspective of the person playing that character. Because you don't get to, like, really have relationships with the minions. You don't get to explore your character at all. You basically have to just be like, hey, do this. Hey, do this. Hey, do this. And you could have, like, a longer, more narrative-focused version of this game. But I don't think that the game invites that, especially because each scene only has one character in it. So it's like, are you going to make your other player sit down and just be quiet while you have a long, like, conversation with the third player where you explore the master and explore that player's relationship to the master? No, you shouldn't do that. That's douchey. Don't. But, like, the master ends up, at least for me, as a role player and as a GM, and as a flawed role player and a flawed GM, being a really flat and uninteresting character, which is a goddamn tragedy. Another thing is that I think that this game probably could have benefited for me, from my perspective, I could have done better by using flaws more often because it's cool, right? You have these characters who have like, oh, I'm really good at this thing and I'm really bad at this thing. And if you can key into that and make the conflict about that in some ways, that's super cool. But on the other hand, again, because of the flatness of the master, like it's not like there are consequences to failure for you're a minion. You know, if somebody comes home to you 
and is like, hey, I didn't do it. Like, you can yell at them, but that's it. It's not like they can curry favor or lose favor in a way that is mechanically meaningful. And it's really hard to put story there. Yeah, you could always add it in, and you could always embellish some of these scenes if you wanted to, but because the game has a very central set of mechanics, embellishments that don't relate to those mechanics are always going to be secondary. And what I think we're seeing here is the peril of putting strong mechanics in your story game. My final, I think, GM note that I have is... If it weren't as bad as it is in both the ways that I described in terms of like, oh, but the master isn't really a character and you don't really get to like do character things in a lot of ways. It's hard really to tell like a story with an arc in this game. You're jamming, you want to do that. That's difficult. And if it weren't awful in the ways that we've all been describing with the mechanics, I think this would be a great game for novice GMs because I, it's not super hard to GM. Like, you don't have to do a ton, a ton of prep work. The rulebook is also fairly explicit about how the game should be GM'd and gives you pretty good examples of it. Yeah. Actually, I really enjoyed reading this rulebook. It's pretty, like, flavorful. It has some really good phrases. Like, one of my favorites that I talked about earlier is like, oh, the, the master is a glorious force of emotion and imagination whose priorities stand in direct opposition to common sense. Like, as a GM, I read that and I go, oh, God, that's so cool. I want to be that master. I want to live in that world. That sounds rad as fuck. We might also eventually play Genius Transgression, which might do that, too. Uh, Genius the Transgression. Genius uh, the Transgression? It's a fan-made hack New World of Darkness thing. <laughs> yeah, well, we should talk about that off the podcast. <laughs> no, it's fairly interesting. It has a lot to do with consensus reality, which apparently so does Mage. But yeah, it, it, like, if there's a hack of this game that is actually playable, I would recommend it to novice GMs. So, a segue into who is this game for? Ooh. It's not really for anyone. Don't play it. <laughs> Unless you want to hack it. Like, I think there's a really good, really cool game in here. And some really broken systems. Actually, play it the way I suggested earlier in the podcast. As sure, a way of generating a set of antagonists for a horror game. Set up your characters, set up your minions. You could even play this game for like a couple rounds to develop the characters of the minions and then cut to the actual protagonists, the heroes, the innocents who find themselves coming to this village for some reason or having to go into the castle or whatever and have them interact with the antagonists you've set up play a traditional heroic story from there. I'm not totally convinced that you couldn't figure out a very basic system, especially for resisting the master, and otherwise play this game as a story game and just keep track of a couple of values and have those values to come into play in particular when defying the master. Mm -hmm. I think that if we had played this game mostly as a story game, like I certainly would have had a lot more fun and we would have probably gotten to do the kinds of things that I was sad that we didn't get to do, like, uh, I don't know, flesh out the most interesting character, the master. Yeah. No, just uh, cut out some bits and shove Fiasco inside, see what happens. <laughs> yeah, sure, shove Fiasco inside. I'm into it. This would be an okay Fiasco playset. Yeah. In fact, actually, I think that's a good hack for Fiasco. Take playsets, abstract the playset, generate the thematics of the playset, and then play it. So Fiasco playsets combine a sort of set of props and like a situation and a location and stuff. Mm-hmm. 
this game is an example of something where that's has like a fixed form but can be reskinned based on your particular master and your particular conspiracy. Mm-hmm. So what you have is this could be a kind of adapter playset, or you have a playset that is sort of structurally the same, but you can change the colors on it to fit whatever you think is interesting. Mm, okay, um, yeah. And this is like a pregame where you generate the skin that you're going to skin the playset, then play Fiasco. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm into it. Yeah, I, I don't think something that's like a hack of this game that's satisfying mechanically and interesting and follows the same basic pattern and tells this story is too hard to come up with. But I would start by probably throwing out every rule about how the stats actually interact with each other and redesigning it from scratch. There's so I'm much an about this game. Asshole, I'm not qualified. <laughs> There's so much about this game that is so cool. There is such a cool game in here. And, like, can't I, a person who's not great at math, read the rules and thought to myself, this game seems cool. Yeah, and I mean, like, we are coming at this game in 2016, 2017? I don't know when this comes out. We're in 2016. We're in 2016 as you record this. That's an extra peek behind the curtain. And I came to this game having heard, oh, this game is really good. You know, it has a lot of acclaim. People gave it very good reviews when it came out, but it did come out in 2003. (laughs) The review compared its elegance to Euclidean geometry. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I was playing this game. I was like, this is weird. Are we we missing something large? I haven't read the rule book, but three other people did, and I don't think they all missed something. Yeah, I would be... (laughs) Like, on the one hand, I would be shocked if we all missed something, but on the other hand, if somebody was like, you fuckwits, you missed something, it's right here, it's on page 35, I'd be like, oh, that makes sense! So I think if you are playing it as a multi-session game, you're going to be more invested in a deeper story that has a number more things going on in it. And then from there, you get to a point where the fact that statistically you're not really making any progress doesn't matter because the fiction is carrying you along. Mm. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, and, I mean, you can make an argument that that's an okay thing for a set of mechanics to aim for, but I just, I disagree. I disagree. I would rather play this game as a story game with absolutely no mechanics. Like, I think that the best hack of this game, for me, is a hack that does have some mechanics and does have some, like, surprise to resolution, of especially of important roles. But I would rather play this game just as a story game with no mechanics at all and just be like well given your arc it seems like maybe you should overthrow the master right now right does everybody think that okay we all think that all right you go overthrow the master you know i would rather play it like that than play it as we played it right yeah or even a set of mechanics that are focused on the story and enforce a dramatic structure like a finite number of acts or a finite number of scenes or the tilt i mean the tilt in fiasco is a mechanic it's a mechanic that's about narrative form, yeah, or, not world simulation. It's a mechanic. Yeah. Or like, I mean, if I, I talked about we talked about shoving fiasco in here, but like, if you got a little bit more personal with it, you could probably actually make up your own dulse around this. Yeah, I was, because we know I was what the last scene dulls. is already. very nearly dulse. Yeah. 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 No, I thought about dulse a lot. And dulse is great. <laughs> I I I love dulse. <laughs> I might be the most boosterish on dulse. Yeah, no, we really, really love this game uh, chef entry that wasn't made into a real game, <laughs> and, and we just played it anyways. <laughs> yeah, I really love dulse. Uh, anyways, was dulse. Dulse I... is the proto fiasco. Yeah. Oh right, yeah, dulse yeah, is it's the romance simulator. Right. Yeah. Oh, 
love it. I mean, I don't know. It might, it's it's clearly partially because I really liked the story we yeah, told absolutely. with Dose. <laughs> and it's never totally clear how much the story is the product of the mechanics aligning to make us tell a good one. But like, I was very fond of all of our characters and of our master here. I'm sorry that they didn't get to have a more no, fulfilling arc. I will, I guess, look for places to put them. Yeah, my possibly just offensive caricature is someone who I might try to play in another game. I think he becomes less of an offensive character the more you get to use him to interact with people and give him a character. And Yeah, the less he is just his flaws. Yeah. Who is this game not for? Honestly, probably in its current state, everyone. It's probably not for anyone, unless you're like, I want to hack a game. Let's find a game to hack. If you're just listening to this and you're really interested in the stuff we talked about at the setting, and the stuff we talked about at the creation of the master, that kind of thing, it might be worth picking up the game just purely for reading those parts. I think they're interesting. I think they give you some interesting ideas without you having to worry about the actual numbers in them. I don't know if you actually want to play the game after that, but there's useful text in there. Yeah, the rulebook is fun. The rulebook is pretty delightful. The rulebook said a couple of things that I was like, oh, all right. As a GM as a, and as a person who's looking to be a better GM, this seems like pretty good advice. Thanks, game. But yeah. I was, it's one of the reasons that I'm so sad. I liked the rule book so much. Well, this was a tragedy. Yes, it was a tragedy. <laughs> oh, it's a tragedy, all right. Anyways, I we, guess... we already made the joke because it's almost complete, like, hey, can you do erotic role-playing with this? You can. Yeah, yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, like, you figure I, it out. I would joke about how to change it, but, like, honestly. Honestly, uh, depending on your game, it, other than the erotic content might be, like, potentially problematic, a... Might have to avoid it, actually. I mean, the sex role-playing I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think it is possible to reinterpret less than human, more than human, as a purely erotic set of uh, criteria, <laughs> and actually sidestep most of the ableism <laughs> debate completely. <laughs> so arguably, this game is less politically objectionable if you use it to fuck. But is it erotic at all to be fully and completely compelled all the time to obey... Or is part of the tension and interest, like, well, I could disobey, or how do I resist, or whatever. Well, no, I, eventually you succeed at resisting, are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah, but, like, eventually... One day the compulsion breaks, but and you rise up and destroy them. But until there... That sounds like an evening. But until Next time on Parallel Lives... I mean, look, one of us, either Charles or Carrie, will have been injured in a horrible My Life with Master accident. That's, that's a discussion for Transpose Perversions, which is our kink podcast. Anyways. Anyways. Transpose Perversions. Yeah, what? Elsie, <laughs> you reacted as though he'd accused you. Yeah? You want to fight about it? Orthogonal beds. Anyways, I guess horizontal uh, lives. We'll see you back next episode for my life. Whatever we play next, diagonal ding dongs. We're sad and we're leaving. Good night. Have more fun than us. Thank you for listening to Parallel Lives. You can't tell, but I'm making a heart with my fingers right now, and it's for you. If you want to find the show online, we're at ParallelURL.com, ParallelPodcast at gmail.com, or the Parallel Lives Tabletop Podcast on Facebook. Review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher Radio. That's an order. I mean, it's not really an order, but I'm being thematic. We'd love it if you would, though. 
You can find My Life with Master for $10 at halfmeme.com. If you'd like to find any of us on Twitter, the podcast is at Parallel Chat. I am at Wednesday Quest. Hugh is at Ionic Blather. Carrie is at Baroque Emotions. And Charles is at gush for you with the number four and the letter U. This episode was produced by me with music by Kevin McLeod. Check back next week for more thrilling adventures of Parallel Lives as we take to the stars in Cosmic Patrol. That episode is about an hour long.